you have your Bibles and want to follow along this morning, the 18th chapter of 1 Samuel, way over in the Old Testament, we continue our discussion about David, a man after God's own heart. And uh, what, does a, what does it mean to have a heart after God? I'm reading a book from the Library of Curtis, Germany this week, and I found this statement underlined in one of Curtis's books. So on the first part of your, uh, of your sermon notes, let me read it. To be a person after God's own heart means to put God first, to walk with Him every moment, to do nothing that would displease Him and allow nothing that would grieve Him, to live a life of practical righteousness and holiness before Him, to give Him our undivided attention, and to love Him supremely. I pray that we will be people after God's own heart in that way. We look at David as that man, a most significant man in Scripture. Sixty-six chapters tell his story, second only to Jesus. His name is mentioned almost 1,100 times in Scripture. And uh, a man that uh, bears a careful examination. Not a perfect man in any way, but a man who kept returning back to this point to have a heart after God, to be all out for God, to love God supremely, to let nothing voluntarily come into our lives that displeases God or dishonors Him. And to conduct ourselves in a very practical way that we do what is right. That's what righteousness means in this context. We do what is right and we seek to please God with all of our lives. The first 18 verses of chapter 18, if you have your Bibles out to follow along, if not, I would ask you to listen carefully. It says, but after David had finished taking, uh, talking to Saul, Jonathan, Saul's son, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. And Jonathan loved David as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and didn't let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Verse 5, whatever Saul sent him to do, David did so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. But when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, or Goliath, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and with joyful songs and tambourines and lutes. As they sang and danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul became angry, very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me only with thousands. What more can David get but the kingdom? Verse 9, from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcibly upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I will pin David to the wall. But David eluded him and the sword twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. But the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul. So he sent David away to, from him and gave him a command over a thousand men. And David led troops in their campaigns. And everything he did was a great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, Saul was afraid of David. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I'll not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, Who am I? And what is my family or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's 
son-in-law. And so we have the current status of David, a man whose, whose life was on somewhat of a roller coaster ride. He would have very high moments with God, followed by very low moments in life. And very high moments with God, followed by very low moments in life. Say, I find that that's true in my life as well. Oftentimes, the highest moments, the times when God is so near to me, and I, can, I feel like I'm so connected to God, and God is so at work for my life, are oftentimes followed by kind of isolated periods, in which I wonder, where in the world is God? And I wonder if God's even hearing my prayers. Uh, high moments followed by low moments. It happened for Jesus that way, you know. He was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. The heavens opened, the Spirit of God came upon him and said, This is my Son, whom I am well pleased and I love. And Jesus was immediately led by the wilderness, led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days and nights. He didn't eat or drink anything and had a great battle with the devil himself in the low moments following the high times. What a roller coaster ride David had been on. It started a couple of chapters over when, when the most holy spiritual man in Israel under the direction of God, came to Bethlehem, the town where David and his family lived, and said, we're going to have a special service tonight. We're going to have a special religious service. It's going to be followed by dinner on the ground, so to speak. We're going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. We're going to eat. He invited Jesse and his sons to the, to the festival. Seven sons came. God wanted to point out one to Samuel as being the one I have chosen. And you know the story. We preached about it a couple of weeks ago. Seven sons came in, stood before Samuel the prophet, walked down the runway, pirouetted, kind of did a Miss America kind of thing. And Samuel got up for the first two to anoint them with his oil. And God said to Samuel, sit down. It's not either one of these boys. And after seven came through, God reminded Samuel, you look on the outside and see just the outside, but I look on the inside of a person. And thank God he does that today. And finally, Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the sons you have? God can't be wrong. And Jesse said, oh, there's the run of the family. Not just the youngest of the family. There's the run of the family out there tending a few sheep. They summoned him too into the presence. They didn't start the service until uh, David got there. The Bible said when David walked in the room, the Lord said to Samuel, this is the one. Arise and anoint him. And in front of his brothers and in front of his fathers and in front of the elders of the city, the most religious man, the most powerful man, the most connected man to God in all of Israel stood up with his horn of oil and anointed the head of David. He probably poured that oil right on top of David. It ran down his face, perhaps in his, through his hair and his beard, onto his clothes. We don't anoint people like that anymore most of the time. I did go to a church service one time where a pastor had had a very difficult time in his congregation and they had finally voted to extend his stay in the ministry and he was so relieved he wanted a prayer of consecration. And I showed up and he said, we got Larry here, he's a district officer, and, and, and he, 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 I'm going to ask him to come and anoint me. I said, sir, I'm just here to worship. I'd like to rest on Sunday and not do anything. And he said, sure. Soon, soon, sure enough, at the end of the service, he went to the altar, called uh, his board together, uh, said that I'm going to anoint him. And I had my Bible in one hand and a microphone in this hand and a jar of anointing oil. And I was really trying to keep from getting it all on me. And I thought I had my hand on top of that uh, uh, a jar of oil when I began to pray for him, but I didn't quite have my finger over the spout. <laughs> and I prayed a long prayer, and by the time I got through, it had all emptied out. It was on his face. It was on his suit. It was down to his waist. I felt like I had ruined his suit, and he said, he, when we got through, he said, Brother, you're not Samuel, and I'm not David. And I was afraid I had ruined his suit. <laughs> we don't anoint people like that generally, but that day, it was a special time. 
And, and as amazing as God chose David, as amazing as the hand of God was evident on all, as Samuel prophesied that this is the one. Now, shocking to me as that was, what happened next was equally shocking. No, nothing happened. They all went home. David went back to the sheep. He didn't move into the palace. He went back to the sheep until God deemed it necessary. A very high moment followed by a low moment. And then we come to chapter 17 of the book of 1 Samuel, the chapter that made David, David famous. The army of Israel facing the army of the Philistines. The Philistines had a giant named Goliath. He came out every morning and every afternoon and defied Israel to present a man to fight him. And he mocked the name of God. And the army of Israel didn't do anything but run and hide for 40 days, once in the morning and once in the night. David showed up, not so much, not so much believing that he was big and powerful and could defeat, could defeat the giant, but David showed up and was incensed that somebody was, was blaspheming the name of God in front of God's people, and no one seemed to want to do anything about it. David stepped to the task, as you know, with the hand of God upon him, and, and although Goliath had all the physical means of warfare and, and weapons and, and uh, shields and javelins and swords and, and arm, body armor, David had nothing but he said to Goliath, you know, you come at me with javelin, spear, all these things. I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty. He's going this day, evidence himself to be the true God. And with a slingshot and a pouch full of rocks, David, uh, David uh, uh, shot one of those rocks. I don't know how to describe a rock that's, that's, uh, that's propelled out of a sling. Do you fling it? Do you flung it? Do you shoot it? Do you throw it? Whatever it did, the Spirit of the Lord added his, to that rock, and David killed Goliath. What a high, high moment. And the army goes home. David is called to the palace, but not as leader. He's called to the palace because of his ability to play the harp. The Spirit of the Lord, the Bible said, has departed from King Saul. King Saul had walked in disobedience time and time and time again, and finally God said, enough of it. I'm going to remove my anointing from him. I'm going to place it on David. But instead of David being able to move into the palace as king, Saul was still there and refused to leave. And David would come and play for Saul when Saul had great periods of depression and discouragement. The anointed one would play for the rejected one. Saul would get so angry in these periods of times, times of great discouragement and great depression, that none of life seemed right. And Saul would get so, uh, so consumed in all of these things that, that the jealousy and envy and, and, and anger would overcome him. And the only thing they knew to do was to bring someone to play sweet music for him. Thank the Lord for godly music that does soothe the soul. But uh, David played in that context, and Saul was... A troubled man. I want to remind you that Saul had stepped away from God, that Saul was defeated spiritually. I want to remind you that Saul was not walking with God. He, he tried to in some ways, but he was a spiritually defeated man. And what we see in Saul is the results of being spiritually defeated. Folks, it makes a difference the place we give God in our life. It made a difference then. It makes a difference now. And a man after God's own heart has God's blessing, God's favor, God's help. But a man who's not living that way or a person who's not living that way has just the opposite. And for one who has known the pleasures of God, to be living in a place where the disdainment of God is the major factor in his life, evidence itself in terrible, terrible ways. We live in an angry world, and I sometimes wonder why there's so much anger. And sometimes the anger comes in church. Could it be said in a very broad way that if we're not walking with God, if we're spiritually defeated, 
Anger, jealousy, envy, hatred, strife, revenge become the dominant factors in our life when God wants us to live in such a different way. Anyway, David's journey to the palace was through his harp playing. And we've read this morning, chapter 18, where we come to the place where not, not only is David uh, not enjoying the high moment of, of victory and celebration, the Super Bowl of all battles, whatever you'd call it, the Olympic gold medal, he was a crowned king, the most, the most treasured person in all of Israel, and instead of celebrating it for long, the one man who held sway over him was just the opposite. Anger, angry, bitter, jealous, galled at what people said about David, the Bible says. And what was Saul's response? He threw a spear at him and tried to pierce his body with that spear and, and, and pin him to the wall behind him. David eluded him two times this day. In fact, Saul would throw a spear at David six times in the journeys ahead. Six times he would try to kill him. In fact, David would run from Saul into the desolate places and hide to try to stay away from this supposedly madman who really was a spiritually defeated man. It's amazing to me that the anointed of God, the one with God's blessing, the one whom God gave power to everything he did, is running like a common fugitive, hiding, scared, afraid. And why did all of this happen? And why didn't God stop it? Uh, why didn't God, I'm sure David sought God to stop it. I'm sure David sought God to try to do, God to do something to cause Saul to leave him alone. All David wanted to do was be a man after God's own heart. And now he's chased by a madman and fearing for his life. By the way, that period of time would take about 10 years. David would be on the run, away from his family, away from his wife, uh, holed up in a cave part of the time. Surrounded by uh, as many as 400 men to 600 men who were outcasts in their world. Where was God in all of that? How has it been in our lives? Sometimes we pray for, God's, for God to evidence Himself in the needs of our life. And sometimes conditions don't get better, they get worse. I mean, we've had a tough go at work and we pray that God will bless us at work and, and yet the boss seems to retaliate and, and make matters worse. We, we, we struggle, we, have, we pr have problems that, uh, with kids in our neighborhood and kids in our school and, and the teachers aren't necessarily accepting of us and the principals are after us and we pray but it doesn't get better. We struggle in marriages and we struggle in extended families and we believe God, and we, we believe we are God's, and we pray, and we seek, and we ask God to evidence Himself. We will give Him all the praise, all the glory. We'll tell everybody what God has done. But how do we live when, for reasons known only to God, He doesn't step up and eliminate our problems? The most amazing thing about chapter 18 is what God did do. God did not eliminate David's problems. God gave David a Jonathan. Think about that for a moment. The, the son of, of King Saul, the heir to the, to the throne of Saul. If Saul was not going to be king anymore, it would fall to Jonathan in the midst of Saul's anger and hatred and uh, retaliation. God gave, Jonathan, God gave David a Jonathan who becomes the one point of light and would help him, guide, uh, help him live in these next ten years. Jonathan, verse 1 says, became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. 
Jonathan took off his robe, his royal robe he was wearing, and gave it to David, along with his tunic, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. In effect, Jonathan said, I acknowledge God's anointing on your life, David, and I'm going to give up my right to being king, and I'm going to give you the, the attributes, the, the attachments of being king. I'm going to put my royal robe on you. I'm not angry with you for being the king. I'm not angry for the fact that God chose you and, and didn't choose me. I'm going to help you and believe God and trust God, and I'm going to guide you. And by the way, here's evidence. Here's the royal robe that goes to the next in line and a sword. If you study David's life, having a sword was a big deal. And, uh, and his, his garments, his bow, and his arrows, and all the, the, the attributes of an important man in the army. God did not eliminate David's problem. God gave David a Jonathan. And it was Jonathan who would lead David. It was Jonathan who would protect David. It was Jonathan who would reveal the, the plans of his father Saul and guide David so that he could be safe. It was Jonathan, on a physical sense, that saved David's life. It's amazing to me. God's anointed one. I mean, he's, he's seen the anointing of Samuel. He has experienced the, 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 the incredible uh, battle victory against Goliath. The people singing his praises. The women came out from all the city to sing his praises, and yet he's the running from, from, from a madman who seeks to kill him, who seeks his life, who's fueled by jealousy, anger. Why didn't God just eliminate Saul? I don't have an answer for that, by the way, but I sure have asked it today, this week, and I thought in my own life, why doesn't God, why doesn't God step in and take care of my problems? I often tell you, and I've, I've said this many times, I, I'm not careful. I find myself in a time, in a five-minute period of prayer, spending about 30 seconds telling God what the problem is and four and a half minutes telling God what He could do to solve my problems. And I am always shocked that God has never taken my advice yet. But God has evidenced Himself in great ways. Why didn't God eliminate Saul? He gave David a Jonathan. And Jonathan would be the one who would help sustain his life. Three thoughts about this, about Jonathan. He lived above his heritage, first of all. Jonathan rose above the way he was brought up, and Jonathan rose above the heritage of his father. Jonathan became a man used greatly by God. He was not the main one that God was speaking to. He was not the one that had the, the blessed, holy anointing of kingship, but he was a part of the plan, and God used Jonathan to help his anointed, and God used Jonathan to help his man through the difficult times of life. Yet to do that, Jonathan had to rise above his heritage. What was his heritage as we know in Scripture? His heritage was a, uh, that he was a son of a very arrogant man and he got to see pride out of control and he got to see ego uh, left un, untouched. He got to see a man who walked with God and didn't walk with God. He saw a man who obeyed God and didn't obey God. He saw a man who was blessed by God and then cursed by God. He saw a man who let ego become the dominating factors of his life and getting even become the dominating factor of what he was trying to do. A man who sought revenge and saw his own way, his own time. Yet Jonathan had to come to place as a man where he rose above all that and decided, I'm going to be my own man, and if God will help me, I'm going to be a part of God's plan. I'm going to let God use me to touch and to help his anointed. I don't have to be the main focus of what God is doing, but I'm going to be a, a part of the solution for God. Jonathan rose up above his heritage. 
to be the man God wanted him to be, to be the solution to David's problem. The, the, the battle in our country of the Hatfields and McCoys is legendary. You ever heard of the Hatfields and McCoys that are in a generations-long fight? I read a story that some researcher had done to try to find the cause of what the real feud was all about. He interviewed everybody that he could that was alive, the Hatfields and McCoys. He went back to records and found out what he could find about their, their descendants. And he came to the conclusion that the feud between the Hatfields and McCoys in certain parts of the country is as strong as ever. But no one remembers what the feud was all about. They kept it alive. They kept the heritage from generation to generation, but they had lost sight of what the problem was and even lost sight of which family caused the problem in the first place. They, they lived within their heritage, but they didn't know why. Here's Jonathan coming in the same setting, who stands up and rises above what he's seen in his own home, taught and believed in the example of his father, to be a friend God could use to be a solution to, the problem, to, to help a man who had the anointing and blessing of God. I challenge you this morning and would say to you that for all of us, for all of us, if God is leading us, we rise, above, we rise above our heritage. Some of us have had great heritages, but we ought to be more than that. Some of us have not had a great heritage. Some of us have come from failed settings in every, in every aspect, from, from our home to personal in integrity. But we don't, in God, we do not have to be bound by yesterday. God helps us to be faithful today, and God gives us a future tomorrow that far exceeds yesterday. In the church world today, men and women need to realize afresh and anew that God helps us be our own person. God helps us be what He wants us to be. And no matter what, from what a sorry life you've been brought up in, no matter what a failed life you've been brought up in, God can help all of us to rise above that to be His people. The, past, the, the sins and the failures of yesterday do not have to become the grip and the chains of tomorrow. Everybody ought to say, praise God. He helps us overcome what life and people have done with us. And Jonathan became a real part of God's plan because he had to realize that he could live beyond his upbringing to help David. I want to remind you this morning that all of us at some time in life are called to be a Jonathan. All of us sometimes have people in our lives that God sends that are our Jonathans. If we're not careful, when we're the one being attacked, we allow the world's attitudes to overtake us, and we become angry and bitter, and all we want to do is tell the story, and all we want to do is spread negative things, and all we want to do is tell everybody in the world what's happened to us when God is sending a Jonathan to help us get through it. And Sometimes we are called to be a Jonathan to those around us. Us. We're not in the spotlight. We're not going to see the, receive the credit. But God is using us and, and for a church to embrace this concept and that we can be Jonathans to one another to help each other in times of need, to hold each other up, to support each other, to let God flow through us is a great designation of God and the way a church ought to be in our world. And to be able to do that with folks outside the church that are not ever going to come to our church, they're not ever going to join our church, they're not ever going to give money to our church, we're going to be the hand of God and a Jonathan role to them because it's the right thing to do and because God leads us to do that. Thank God for Jonathans. And we all need one. And we all will be one sometime 
if we let God lead us. Jonathan had to realize and David had to realize, secondly, that God provides. We sometimes forget that in the church. God does provide. We get mixed up because God doesn't provide what we think we need. I'm sure glad he doesn't. I'll tell you, I can sure find that misses have been made greater in my life if God had followed my solution, but God didn't. He followed his solution, and it was far better than I ever dreamed it could be. God provides, folks. In our times of sadness, God provides. In our time of loss, God provides. In our time of, 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 of incredibly difficult things, God provides. And when trouble comes, as it came to David, it's not a time to doubt God and doubt God's anointing and doubt God's place and presence in our life. It's a time to trust that God will supply exactly what we need. And for David, God provided Jonathan for him. He didn't kill Saul. God didn't kill Saul. God didn't have somebody kill Saul for a long time. But God provided exactly what he needed. And folks, there's nothing more scriptural today than the evidence of God providing for his people. God provided for the children of Israel as they wandered around the desert. Forty days, forty years, water to drink when there was no water. Water gushing out of a rock when there was no water. Water to feed a million, to, 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 to quench the thirst of a million people. That's more than a drop of water. It's a stream of water. It's a gulf of water. God sent manna from heaven that they could grind up and, and bake bread out of it for 40 years. Didn't have to work. Didn't have to do anything out except gather it up every day. And I note that God gave them a supply for that day only. Jesus said, we are to pray, Lord, give us our daily bread. I prayed for God to give me daily bread, and a week's supply would, be, would not be bad, and a month's supply would be even better. But the promise is daily bread. Elijah found a widow woman in the midst of, middle of a drought that, that was at her wit's end and at her end, had enough meal in her jar and enough oil in her jar to make one small cake of bread. And when Elijah finds her, she says, I'm out here gathering two sticks to build a small fire. Not a bonfire, just a little tiny one. My son and I are going to eat our last cake of bread, and we're going to die. It's a pretty dismal. But God had sent a Jonathan to her, and she didn't know it. And Elijah said, make a little bit of cake for me. Make that cake for me first and give me something to drink. And the Bible said she did, and God did. And from that day on until the end of the drought, a year and a half, her jar of meal never went empty, and her cruise of oil did not fail. She had enough to eat for a year and a half. She and he and all of her household, the Bible said, for many, many days hence, Jesus showed us that God provides one time talking to 5,000 people at church realizing they'd been there all day didn't have anything to eat time to send them home they live on the other side of the lake find a little boy with a small picnic lunch probably not even enough food for him Jesus took it and blessed it and when he got through they ate the Bible says not just so that everybody had a bite of food but they ate until they were completely satisfied God still provides and in times of trouble, and times of difficulty, David's story shows us that God provides to help us get through and to help us see great victory again. It's just in this case that God provided a Jonathan to David, and we play that role in other people's lives. And that really is my third point. Sometimes we are the one God chooses to help others. You know, more times what we often do in church when somebody has great problems, and I don't mean here, but I mean in church at large, 
We tend to talk about it. We tend to spread the news. We tend to call everybody we know. We tend to put it out on electric media and make sure everybody's aware and all these things. And by the time everybody's added something to it, it's sometimes the story's greater than it was when, in the beginning. When God says we are to bear one another's burdens, we are to pray for one another. We are to love each other. We are to support each other. I found that sometimes in church the people have done some things they shouldn't have done. Sometimes they know it, sometimes they don't know it. And I've watched people who did know they shouldn't have done that to make sure they knew it. But all they needed was, was acceptance from the church and somebody to help them and pray for them. And God will reveal those things to them in the right time, in the right way, far better than we could. We might be the one to help. I got off the elevator hospital a few months ago and there's a, some of the hospitals have little seating areas off the, hospital, off the elevator side, kind of out of the way. And I couldn't see anybody, but I could hear somebody sobbing. And I finally, actually I walked off and then I thought, maybe I better not. The Lord sent me back there and I peered around and there's a man my age sitting with his back facing the wall. And he is just, he is, he's not crying and he's not fully, he, he's, he's heartbroken. And I said to the Lord, are you sure it's this guy? Well, he was the only one there, you know. I didn't know what to say to him. I didn't know what to do to him. But I finally went up and said, sir, is there anything I can help you with? I can't, I can't help but notice and I can't help but hear. You are greatly troubled. For the next 10 minutes, he poured out his heart to me and told me the diagnosis his wife had had and told me all these things and told me about the family. And as much as you can factor in 10 minutes of nonstop talking, and I prayed with him. I was shocked at what he said as I turned to walk away. Your talking to me has been a godsend, he said. I didn't say anything to him. I just stood there and listened to him. And God has said to me, you're that man's Jonathan. Oh, what the church would be if we would, if we would, if we would really bind our hearts together as Jonathan and bound his heart together with David. As the scripture says they were knit together as if a, a cord of fabric had been, had been twisted and configured into a rope. They, they were knitted together. What could the church be if we knitted our hearts and minds and souls and interests with each other and we sought for each other's good and we sought to pray for each other and support one another and help each other and do all the positive things a church ought to do. But sadly, the church has a reputation in society as, as, as an organization that often shoots its wounded or kicks its wounded out. That's not true everywhere, but it is true somewhere. Oh, that God would help us to realize we might be the one, and we simply allow God to work in our lives. God did not do a dramatic thing for David in the, in the 18th chapter and on the chapters that, uh, that, that follow this. God didn't do an amazing thing to eliminate God's problem, uh, uh, David's problem. But God gave Jonathan, who showed up, just at the right time, with just the right news, with just the right direction, to allow David to stay one step ahead of a madman named Saul until God said, it's time, it's time for my plan to come to full fruition. And David, you can go down and inherit the palace as Saul and Jonathan would die in battle the right man the right person the right time the right place god is at work folks in all things we do and god wants to help us in our interpersonal relationships god did not take away david's problem but god gave him a jonathan to help him sustain life until the next phase of god's plan would come into being trust someone who is your jonathan 
and seek for ways to allow God you to be a Jonathan to those around us. And the church will be a benefit. And the kingdom will go forward. And people will hear and see what God can do in their lives like no other venue can create. And we trust God to lead us and guide us and help us all the way through. A man after God's own heart is to be a person who puts God first. They're a person who walks with God every moment. They're a person who seeks to do nothing that would disrespect God and they would allow nothing in their life that would grieve God. They live a practical life of practical righteousness and holiness before God and they give Him their undivided attention and love Him supremely. I want to be a man just like that. There's highs and lows in that kind of life. There's times of great blessing of God and times of, of great wonder where God is. There's, there's times of, 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 of emotional roller coasters, but God is a constant through it all if we will just but trust Him. And we start right where we are today. I'm fascinated by some of the events and battles and great battles of World War II. And uh, <clears throat> I was in uh, a, a town one time when there was the 50th anniversary of the of the of the uh, uh, of D-Day of the uh, battle on the beaches of Normandy, fascinated to read some of those accounts. And in fact, the, the the turning event for the Allied forces took place in a most unusual way. For months, if you know the story, for months you know the the the, the assault on the beaches of Normandy had been planned, and the weather was bad, and and, and lots of factors kept it from happening, but. Uh, somehow as the ships gathered in the English Channel from various parts of the world and, and a great uh, coalition of forces was there. It was about June 4th or 5th, or maybe June 6th. The weather report showed terrible weather for the next month, except for about a 12-hour period in which the clouds would dissipate and the winds would be a little bit lower, uh, softer, and the rain would not be as intense. And the president decided to launch the attack then, way out in the English Channel. Before dawn, the first, forces of, the first Allied forces were to hit the beach, and they did that at, uh, at Omaha Beach. We read the stories about how almost 90% of those first troops that hit the ground were killed. Some were killed because they stepped off their amphibious uh, vehicle too soon, and water was too deep, and they had so much weight on them that they sunk and, and drowned. But uh, Rommel's forces were dug into the hills above the beach, and it was a terrible, terrible battle. Unbeknownst to anybody, though, about an hour after sunlight, uh, uh, the, first, uh, uh, the 4th Infantry Division was supposed to land down the beach, led by an iconic man, uh, General Theodore Roosevelt, Jr. His father had been the president, and maybe he was a second. Jr. doesn't sound quite right. He was a 56-year-old general. He, he limped and walked with a cane. He had a bad heart. Uh, the, the commander said he's too old and we can't use him and he's in too bad a shape, but the men loved him. It was his fourth assault campaign and there was no real reason tangibly why they wouldn't let him go. And the 4th Infantry Division uh, launched from the, uh, their mothership about to 6.30 in the morning, headed west of Omaha Beach. They were a little bit shocked to see, the old current general was a little bit shocked to see, they passed in the water, they passed 32 amphibious tanks that were supposed to land ahead of them. And not knowing if they should slow down or let the tanks catch up or figure out what was going on, 
the general made a decision to go ahead and proceed as planned. They hit the Utah Beach, west of Omaha Beach. They hit Utah Beach just a little after sunrise amidst heavy shelling. They made their way uh, from the beach up to the seawall and hid behind the seawall and finally got the courage to look up. And what they saw shocked them because nothing looked like it was supposed to look. From the reconnaissance plans and the reconnaissance flights, they were told what they should see, and, and it wasn't there. And then came the great realization we, are, we have landed where we are not supposed to be. We are not supposed to be here. They got the maps out and began to confer with the ship back in, in the English Channel and, and realized that the wind and the waves and the tide and the darkness and the traffic on the water had blown them way off course, in fact, a mile off course. And what would they do? Well, there were some of the junior officers that thought they ought to get back in their amphibious vehicles and, and, and travel, uh, travel east again a mile, estimate a mile, and land again. There were a few that hoped they would get in their vehicles and go back to the ship out in the English Channel and start over. But they said the old colonel stood up on the seawall. He had a stocking cap on his head because he didn't like helmets, if you can believe that. He had a cigar stuck in the edge of his mouth that he always had. He, they said his voice sounded more like a, a, a bull elk in rutting season than a human voice. Leaning on a cane, 45 caliber pistol in one hand, stocking cap on his head, cigar jutted out of his mouth. The colonel began to review, the general began to review the sights and made this declaratory statement. Well, he said, we're off course. We're not where we ought to be. The wind, the waves, all these factors have got us off course. But the colonel made these famous, said these famous words. All we can do is start the war right where we are. And in fact, we will start the war here. They radioed back to the mothership over their intentions and were not uh, met with great news. But the, the colonel said, this is where we are. This is where God's put us. And we're going forward. And within one hour, one simple hour, they had blown eight whole 50-yard-wide spaces in Rommel's first line of defense. And the general gave the command, and troops began to pour in that point of the island. In fact, in the next 24 hours, there would be 17,000 vehicles go through Rommel's front line and 20,000 troops, and it was the scene that gave victory to the Allied forces in the great battle of D-Day. And if you follow history, you'll know that that was the catalyst then for the Allied forces to get the upper hand in the battle, and the march toward, uh, the march forward would somehow give them victory, and the war didn't last too much longer after that. I find in life that's true for us. It's what was true for, for, for Roosevelt's brigade. The, oftentimes we're off course. The wind has blown us off course. Life has, brought us, has blown us off the course we ought to be. We made bad decisions that moved us away, and we really begin to examine life, we are not where we ought to be spiritually with God and in the place God would have us to be. All we can do is take the practiced uh, example of this uh, 4th Infantry Division and we start right where we are today. It's time to start being a Jonathan. It's time to start letting God bring a Jonathan to us. Forget the past in that respect. Forget where we are, where we should have been, what we should have done. The enemy will keep that before our minds to the point that we will stay defeated and discouraged. But God says always, it's a new day with me. We start where we are, and we seek to let God lead us and guide us and direct us. And may we be Jonathans this week to those people around us. 
and in the midst of our troubles, may we allow those around us to be a Jonathan to us who seek to protect us and guide us and, and, and defend us and let God work in our lives as it was for David. I would like to tell you that in the story of David and his greatness, a man after God's own heart, I would like to tell you that everything David did was successful. I would like to tell you that David didn't have problems because God's anointing was upon his life. I would like to tell you that it was all downhill for David. But that is not what this book says. It was hard. It was tough. It was demanding. It was confusing. But God was there every step of the way to guide David. And it makes his ascent to the throne even more spectacular and more significant because of what God has brought him through to accomplish his great will. May it be so in our lives today. And may we start today being what we should be and allowing God to help us every step of the way. And everybody says amen to a man after God's own heart. Well, I'm going to pray for us in just a minute, and then we're going to transition to the observance of Holy Communion. First Sunday of the month, what a blessed thing it is to participate in Holy Communion. The, the only thing Jesus told his people to do after, at the point of his death and, and going forward, and we will celebrate Holy Communion. Our Father, we ask your blessing upon our service today on the scripture that was read, on the lesson that uh, we, have, uh, we have examined. And while it might not be a spectacular lesson, it is such an important one. For you're at work in our lives. You provide what we need. You take care of us every step of the way. Sometimes it's so unusual in such unusual ways we don't even recognize it. But give us eyes to see you at work and a heart to understand what you're doing. Lord, help us to be a Jonathan. It takes time to be a Jonathan. It takes an investment in people's lives to be a Jonathan. May we do that for others because you've done it for us. We ask you to send Jonathan's to us in our time of need as well. And we let you work in that way. We ask these things in your name. Amen and amen. On the last night of Jesus' life.